Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 187. The True Bride. There was once upon a time a girl who was young and beautiful, but she had lost her mother when she was quite a child, and her stepmother did all she could to make the girl's life wretched. Whenever this woman gave her anything to do, she worked at it tirelessly and did everything that lay in her power. Still, she could not touch the heart of the wicked woman by that. She was never satisfied. It was never enough. The harder the girl worked, the more work was put upon her. And all that the woman thought of was how to weigh her down with still heavier burdens and make her life still more miserable. One day she said to her, Here are twelve pounds of feathers which you must strip, and if they are not done this evening you may expect a good beating. Do you imagine you are too idle? away the whole day the poor girl sat down to the work but tears ran down her cheeks as she did so for she saw plainly enough that it was quite impossible to finish the work in one day whenever she had a little heap of feathers lying before her and she sighed or clasped her hands together in her anguish they flew away and she had to pick them out again and begin her work anew Then she put her elbows on the table, laid her face in her two hands and cried, Is there no one then on God's earth to have pity on me? Then she heard a low voice which said, Be comforted, my child, I have come to help you. The maiden looked up and an old woman was by her side. She took the girl kindly by the hand and said, Only tell me what is troubling you. Since she spoke so kindly, the girl told her of her miserable life and how one burden after another was laid upon her, and she never could get to the end of the work which was given to her. If I have not done these feathers by this evening, my stepmother will beat me. She has threatened she will, and I know she keeps her word. Her tears began to flow again, but the good old woman said, Do not be afraid, my child. Rest a while, and in the meantime, I will look to your work. The girl lay down on her bed and soon fell asleep. The old woman seated herself at the table with the feathers, and how they did fly off the quills, which she scarcely touched with her withered hands. The twelve pounds were soon finished, and when the girl awoke, great snow-white heaps were lying piled up, and everything in the room was neatly cleared away. But the old woman had vanished. The maiden thanked God, and sat still till evening came, when the stepmother came in and marvelled to see the work completed. Just look, you awkward creature, said she. What can be done when people are industrious, and why could you not set about something else? There you sit with your hands crossed. When she went out, she said, The creature is worth more than her salt. I must give her some work that is still harder. Next morning she called the girl and said, There is a spoon for you 
With that you must empty out for me the great pond which is beside the garden, and if it is not done by night, you know what will happen. The girl took the spoon and saw that it was full of holes, but even if it had not been, she never could have emptied the pond with that. She set to work at once, knelt down by the water into which her tears were falling and began to empty it. But the good old woman appeared again, and when she learnt the cause of her grief, she said, Be of good cheer, my child. Go into the thicket and lie down and sleep. I will soon do your work. As soon as the old woman was alone, she barely touched the pond, and a vapour rose up on high from the water, and mingled itself with the clouds. Gradually the pond was emptied, and when the maiden awoke before sunset and came there, she saw nothing but the fishes which were struggling in the mud. She went to her stepmother and showed her that the work was done. It ought to have been done long before this, said she, and grew white with anger, but she meditated something new. On the third morning she said to the girl, You must build me a castle on the plain there, and it must be ready by the evening. The maiden was dismayed and said, How can I complete such a great work? I will endure no opposition, screamed the stepmother. If you can empty a pond with a spoon that is full of holes, you can build a castle too. I will take possession of it this very day, and if anything is wanting, even if it be the most trifling thing in the kitchen or cellar, you know what lies before you. She drove the girl out, and when she entered the valley, the rocks were there, piled up one above the other, and all her strength would not have enabled her even to move the very smallest of them. She sat down and wept, and still she hoped the old woman would help her. The old woman was not long in coming. She comforted her and said, Lie down there in the shade and sleep. I will soon build the castle for you. If it would be a pleasure to you, you can live in it yourself. When the maiden had gone away, the old woman touched the grey rocks. They began to rise and immediately moved together as if giants had built the walls. And on these the building arose, and it seemed as if countless hands were working invisibly, and placing one stone upon another. There was a dull, heavy noise from the ground. Pillars arose of their own accord on high, and placed themselves in order near each other. The tiles laid themselves in order on the roof, and when noon came, the great weathercock was already turning itself on the summit of the tower, like a golden figure of the Virgin with fluttering garments. The inside of the castle was being finished while evening was drawing near. How the old woman managed it I know not, but the walls of the rooms were hung with silk and velvet, embroidered chairs were there, and richly ornamented armchairs by marble tables, crystal chandeliers hung down from the ceilings and mirrored themselves in the smooth pavement. Green parrots were there in gilt cages, and so were strange birds which sang most beautifully, 
and there was on all sides as much magnificence as if a king were going to live there. The sun was just setting when the girl awoke, and the brightness of a thousand lights flashed in her face. She hurried to the castle and entered by the open door. The steps were spread with red cloth, and the golden balustrade beset with flowering trees. When she saw the splendour of the apartment, she stood as if turned to stone. Who knows how long she might have stood there if she had not remembered the stepmother. Alas, she said to herself, if she could but be satisfied at last, and would give up making my life a misery to me. The girl went and told her that the castle was ready. I will move into it at once, said she, and rose from her seat. When she entered the castle, she was forced to hold her hand before her eyes. The brilliancy of everything was so dazzling. You see, said she to the girl, how easy it has been for you to do this. I ought to have given you something harder. She went through all the rooms and examined every corner to see if anything was wanting or defective. But she could discover nothing. Now we will go down below, said she, looking at the girl with malicious eyes. The kitchen and the cellar still have to be examined, and if you have forgotten anything, you shall not escape your punishment. But the fire was burning on the hearth, and the meat was cooking in the pans, the tongs and shuffle were leaning against the wall, and the shining brazen utensils all arranged in sight. Nothing was wanting, not even a coal box and water pail. Which is the way to the cellar, she cried. If that is not abundantly filled, it shall go ill with you. She herself raised up the trapdoor and descended, but she had hardly made two steps before the heavy trapdoor, which was only laid back, fell down. The girl heard a scream, lifted up the door very quickly to go to her aid, but she had fallen down, and the girl found her lying lifeless at the bottom. And now the magnificent castle belonged to the girl alone. She at first did not know how to reconcile herself to her good fortune. Beautiful dresses were hanging in the wardrobes, the chests were filled with gold or silver, or with pearls and jewels, and she never felt a desire that she was not able to gratify. And soon the fame of the beauty and riches of the maiden went over all the world. Wooers presented themselves daily, but none pleased her. At length the son of the king came, and he knew how to touch her heart, and she betrothed herself to him. In the garden of the castle was a lime tree, under which they were one day sitting together, when he said to her, I will go home and obtain my father's consent to our marriage. I entreat you to wait for me here under this lime tree. I shall be back with you in a few hours. The maiden kissed him on his left cheek and said, Keep true to me, and never let anyone else kiss you on this cheek. I will wait here under the lime tree until you return. The maid stayed beneath the lime tree until sunset, but he did not return. She sat three days from morning till evening, waiting for him, but in vain. As he still was not there by the fourth day, she said, some accident has assuredly befallen him. 
I will go out and seek him, and will not come back until I have found him. She packed up three of her most beautiful dresses, one embroidered with bright stars, the second with silver moons, the third with golden suns, tied up a handful of jewels in her handkerchief, and set out. She inquired everywhere for her betrothed, but no one had seen him. No one knew anything about him. Far and wide did she wander through the world, but she found him not. At last she hired herself to a farmer as a cowherd and buried her dresses and jewels beneath a stone. And now she lived as a herdswoman, guarded her herd, and was very sad and full of longing for her beloved one. She had a little calf which she taught to know her and fed it out of her own hand. And when she said, Little calf, little calf, kneel by my side, and do not forget your shepherd maid, as the prince forgot his betrothed bride, who waited for him neath the lime tree's shade. The little calf knelt down, and she stroked it. And when she had lived for a couple of years alone and full of grief, a report was spread over all the land that the king's daughter was about to celebrate her marriage. The road to the town passed through the village where the maiden was living, and it came to pass that once when the maiden was driving out her herd, her bridegroom travelled by. He was sitting proudly on his horse, and never looked round, but when she saw him she recognised her beloved, and it was just as if a sharp knife had pierced her heart. Alas, said she, I believe him true to me, but he has forgotten me. Next day he again came along the road. When he was near her she said to the little calf, Little calf, little calf, kneel by my side, and do not forget your shepherd maid, as the prince forgot his betrothed bride, who waited for him neath the lime tree's shade. When he was aware of the voice, he looked down and reined in his horse. He looked into the herd's face, and then put his hands before his eyes as if he were trying to remember something, but he soon rode onwards and was out of sight. Alas, said she, he no longer knows me, and her grief was even greater. Soon after this a great festival, three days long, was to be held at the king's court, and the whole country was invited to it. Now I will try my last chance, thought the maiden, and when evening came she went to the stone under which she had buried her treasures. She took out the dress with the golden suns, put it on, and adorned herself with the jewels. She let down her hair, which she had concealed under a handkerchief, and it fell down in long curls about her, and thus she went into the town and in the darkness was observed by no one. When she entered the brightly lighted hall, everyone started back in amazement, but no one knew who she was. The king's son went to meet her, but he did not recognise her. He led her out to dance, and was so enchanted with her beauty that he thought no more of the other bride, 
When the feast was over, she vanished in the crowd and hastened before daybreak to the village, where she once more put on her herd's dress. Next morning... She took out the dress with the silver moons and put a half-moon made of precious stones in her hair. When she appeared at the festival, all eyes were turned upon her, but the king's son hastened to meet her and, filled with love for her, danced with her alone and no longer so much as glanced at anyone else. Before she went away, she was forced to promise him to come again to the festival on the last evening. When she appeared for the third time, she wore the star dress which sparkled at every step she took, and her hair ribbon and girdle were starred with jewels. The prince had already been waiting for her for a long time and forced his way up to her. Do but tell who you are, said he. I feel just as if I'd already known you a long time. Do you not know what I did when you left me? Then she stepped up to him and kissed him on his left cheek, and in a moment it was as if scales fell from his eyes and he recognised the true bride. Come, said he to her, here I stay no longer, gave her his hand and led her down to the carriage. The horses hurried away to the magic castle as if the wind had been harnessed to the carriage. The illuminated windows already shone in the distance. When they drove past the lime tree, countless glowworms were swarming about it. It shook its branches and sent forth their fragrance. On the steps, flowers were blooming, and the room echoed with the song of strange birds. But in the hall, the entire court was assembled, and the priest was waiting to marry the bridegroom to the true bride. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 188 The Hare and the Hedgehog. This story, my dear folks, seems to be false. But it really is true for my grandfather, from whom I have it, used always when relating it, to say complacently, It must be true, my son, or else no one could tell it to you. The story is as follows. One Sunday morning, about harvest time, just as the buckwheat was in bloom, the sun was shining brightly in heaven. The east wind was blowing warmly over the stubble fields. The larks were singing in the air, the bees buzzing among the buckwheat. The people were all going in their Sunday clothes to church, and all creatures were happy, and the hedgehog was happy too. The hedgehog, however, was standing by his door with his arms folded, enjoying the morning breezes, and slowly trilling a little song to himself, which was neither better nor worse than the songs which hedgehogs are in the habit of singing on a blessed Sunday morning. While he was thus singing, half aloud to himself, it suddenly occurred to him that, while his wife was washing and drying the children, 
he might very well take a walk into the field and see how his turnips were going on. The turnips were in fact close beside his house and he and his family were accustomed to eating them, for which reason he looked upon them as his own. No sooner said than done. The hedgehog shut the door behind him and took the path to the field. He had not gone very far from home and was just turning round the slow bush which stands there outside the field to go up into the turnip field when he observed the hare who had gone out on business of the same kind, namely to visit his cabbages. When the hedgehog caught sight of the hare, he bade him a friendly good morning, but the hare, who was in his own way a distinguished gentleman and frightfully haughty, did not return the hedgehog's greeting, but said to him, assuming at the same time a very contemptuous manner, "'How do you happen to be running about here in the field so early in the morning?' "'I'm taking a walk,' said the hedgehog. "'A walk,' said the hare, with a smile. "'It seems to me that you might use your legs for a better purpose.' This answer made the hedgehog furiously angry for he can bear anything but an attack on his legs, just because they are crooked by nature. So now the hedgehog said to the hare, You seem to imagine that you can do more with your legs than I with mine. That is just what I do think, said the hare. That can be put to the test, said the hedgehog. I wager that if we run a race, I will outstrip you. That is ridiculous, you with your short legs, said the hare, but for my part I am willing if you have such a monstrous fancy for it. What shall we wager? A golden louis d'or and a bottle of brandy, said the hedgehog. Done, said the hare, shake hands on it, and then we may as well come off at once. Nay, said the hedgehog, there is no such great hurry, I am still fasting. I will go home first and have a little breakfast. In half an hour, I will be back again at this place. Then the hedgehog departed, for the hare was quite satisfied with this. On his way, the hedgehog thought to himself, The hare relies on his long legs, but I will contrive to get the better of him. He may be a great man, but he is a very silly fellow, and he shall pay for what he has said. So when the hedgehog reached home, he said to his wife, Wife, dress yourself quickly. You must go out to the field with me. What is going on then? said his wife. I've made a wager with the hare for a golden louis d'or and a bottle of brandy. I'm to run a race with him, and you must be present. Good heavens, husband, said the wife, now cried, are you not right in your mind? Have you completely lost your wits? What can make you want to run a race with the hare? Hold your tongue, woman, said the hedgehog. That is my affair. Don't begin to discuss things which are matters for men. Be off, dress yourself and come with me. What could the hedgehog's wife do? She was forced to obey him, whether she liked it or not. So, when they'd set out on their way together, the hedgehog said to his wife, Now pay attention to what I'm going to say. Look, I will make a long field our race course. The hare shall run in one farrow, 
and I in another, and we will begin to run from the top. Now all that you have to do is to place yourself here below in the furrow, and when the hare arrives at the end of the furrow, on the other side of you, you must cry out to him, I am here already. Then they reached the field, and the hedgehog showed his wife her place, and then walked up the field. When he reached the top, the hare was already there. Shall we start? said the hare. Certainly, said the hedgehog. Then both at once, so saying, each placed himself in his own furrow. The hare counted once, twice, thrice, and away, and went off like a whirlwind down the field. The hedgehog, however, only ran about three paces, and then he stooped down in the furrow, and stayed quietly where he was. When the hare, therefore, arrived in full career at the lower end of the field, the hedgehog's wife met him with the cry, I am here already. The hare was shocked and wondered not a little. He thought no other than that it was the hedgehog himself who was calling to him, for the hedgehog's wife looked just like her husband. The hare, however, thought to himself, That has not been done fairly, and cried, It must be run again, let us have it again. And once more he went off like the wind in a storm, so that he seemed to fly. But the hedgehog's wife stayed quietly in her place. So when the hare reached the top of the field, the hedgehog himself cried out to him, I am here already. The hare, however, quite beside himself with anger, cried, It must be run again. We must have it again. All right, answered the hedgehog. For my part, we'll run as often as you choose. So the hare ran seventy-three times more, and the hedgehog always held out against him, and every time the hare reached either the top or the bottom, either the hedgehog or his wife said, I am here already. At the seventy-fourth time, however, the hare could no longer reach the end. In the middle of the field, he fell to the ground, blood streamed out of his mouth, and he lay dead on the spot. But the hedgehog took the louis d'or, which he'd won, and the bottle of brandy, called his wife out of the furrow, and both went home together in great delight. And if they are not dead, they are living there still. This is how it happened that the hedgehog made the hare run races with him on the Buxtehude Heath till he died, and since that time no hare has ever had any fancy for running races with a Buxtehude hedgehog. The moral of this story, however, is firstly that no one, however great he may be, should permit himself to jest at anyone beneath him, even if he is only a hedgehog. And secondly, it teaches that when a man marries, he should take a wife in his own position, who looks just as he himself looks. So, whoever is a hedgehog, let him see to it that his wife is a hedgehog also, and so forth. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 189. 
the spindle, the shuttle and the needle. There was once a girl whose father and mother died while she was still a little child. All alone in a small house at the end of the village dwelt her godmother who supported herself by spinning, weaving and sewing. The old woman took the forlorn child to live with her, kept her to her work and educated her in all that is good. When the girl was fifteen years old, the old woman became ill, called the child to her bedside and said, Dear daughter, I feel my end drawing near. I leave you the little house, which will protect you from wind and weather, and my spindle, shuttle and needle, with which you can earn your bread. Then she laid her hands on the girl's head, blessed her and said, Only preserve the love of God in your heart, and all will go well with you. Thereupon she closed her eyes, and when she was laid in the earth, the maiden followed the coffin, weeping bitterly, and paid her the last mark of respect. And now the maiden lived quite alone in the little house, and was industrious, and span, and wove, and sewed, and the blessing of the good old woman was on all that she did. It seemed as if the flax in the room increased of its own accord, and whenever she wove a piece of cloth or carpet or had made a shirt, she at once found a buyer who paid her amply for it, so that she was in want of nothing, and even had something to share with others. About this time the son of the king was travelling about the country looking for a bride. He was not to choose a poor one, and did not want to have a rich one. So he said, She shall be my wife who is the poorest and at the same time the richest. When he came to the village where the maiden dwelt, he inquired, as he did wherever he went, who was the richest and also the poorest girl in the place. They first named the richest, the poorest, they said, was the girl who lived in the small house quite at the end of the village. The rich girl was sitting in all her splendour before the door of her house, and when the prince approached her, she got up, went to meet him, and made him a low curtsy. He looked at her, said nothing, and rode on. When he came to the house of the poor girl, she was not standing at the door, but sitting in her little room. He stopped his horse and saw through the window on which the bright sun was shining the girl sitting at her spinning wheel busily spinning. She looked up, and when she saw that the prince was looking in, she blushed all over her face, let her eyes fall, and went on spinning. I do not know whether, just at that moment, the thread was quite even, but she went on spinning until the king's son had ridden away again. Then she went to the window, opened it and said, It is so warm in this room. But she still looked after him, as long as she could distinguish the white feathers in his hat. Then she sat down to work again in her own room and went on with her spinning, and a saying which the old woman had often repeated when she was sitting at her work came into her mind, and she sang these words to herself. 
Spindle, my spindle, haste, haste you away, and here to my house bring the wooer, I pray. And what do you think happened? The spindle sprang out of her hand in an instant and out of the door, and when in her astonishment she got up and looked after it, she saw that it was dancing out merrily into the open country and drawing a shining golden thread after it. Before long it had entirely vanished from her sight. As she now had no spindle, the girl took the weaver's shuttle in her hand, sat down to her loom and began to weave. The spindle, however, danced continually onwards and just as the thread came to an end, reached the prince. "'What do I see?' he cried. "'The spindle certainly wants to show me the way.' turned his horse about, and rode back with the golden thread. The girl was, however, sitting at her work, singing, Shuttle my shuttle, weave well this day, and guide the wooer to me, I pray. Immediately the shuttle sprang out of her hand and out through the door. Before the threshold, however, it began to weave a carpet which was more beautiful than the eyes of man had ever yet beheld. Lilies and roses blossomed on both sides of it, and on a golden ground in the centre green branches ascended, under which bounded hares and rabbits, stags and deer, stretched their heads in between them, brightly coloured birds were sitting in the branches above. They lacked nothing but the gift of song. The shuttle leapt here and there, and everything seemed to grow of its own accord. As the shuttle had run away, the girl sat down to sew. She held the needle in her hand and sang, Needle, my needle, sharp-pointed and fine, prepare a wooer for this house of mine. Then the needle leapt out of her fingers and flew everywhere about the room as quick as lightning. It was just as if invisible spirits were working. They covered tables and benches with green cloth in an instant, and the chairs with velvet and hung the windows with silken curtains. Hardly had the needle put in the last stitch than the maiden saw through the window the white feathers of the prince whom the spindle had brought there by the golden thread. He alighted, stepped over the carpet into the house, and when he entered the room there stood the maiden in her poor garments, but she shone out from within them like a rose surrounded by leaves. You are the poorest and also the richest, said he to her. Come with me, you shall be my bride. She did not speak, but she gave him her hand. Then he gave her a kiss and led her forth, lifted her onto his horse and took her to the royal castle where the wedding was solemnized with great rejoicings. The spindle, shuttle and needle were preserved in the treasure chamber and held in great honour.
Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 190, The Peasant and the Devil. There was once on a time a far-sighted, crafty peasant whose tricks were much talked about. The best story is, however, how he once got hold of the devil and made a fool of him. The peasant had one day been working in his field and as twilight had set in was making ready for the journey home when he saw a heap of burning coals in the middle of his field and when full of astonishment he went up to it a little black devil was sitting on the live coals. You do indeed sit upon a treasure, said the peasant. Yes, in truth, replied the devil, on a treasure which contains more gold and silver than you have ever seen in your life. The treasure lies in my field and belongs to me, said the peasant. It is yours, answered the devil, if you will for two years give me the half of everything your field produces. Money I have enough of but I have a desire for the fruits of the earth. The peasant agreed to the bargain. In order, however, that no dispute may arise about the division, said he, everything that is above ground shall belong to you, and what is under the earth to me. The devil was quite satisfied with that, but the cunning peasant had sown turnips. Now, when the time for harvest came, the devil appeared and wanted to take away his crop, but he found nothing but the yellow withered leaves, while the peasant, full of delight, was digging up his turnips. You have had the best of it for once, said the devil, but the next time that won't do. What grows above ground shall be yours, and what is under it mine. I am willing, replied the peasant, but when the time came to sow, he did not again sow turnips, but wheat. The grain became ripe, and the peasant went into the field and cut the full stalks down to the ground. When the devil came, he found nothing but the stubble, and went away in a fury down into a cleft in the rocks. That is the way to cheat the devil, said the peasant, and went and fetched away the treasure. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 191. The Crumbs on the Table A countryman one day said to his little puppies, Come into the parlour and enjoy yourselves, and pick up the breadcrumbs on the table. Your mistress has gone out to pay some visits. Then the little dog said, no, no, we will not go. If the mistress gets to know it, she will beat us. The countryman said, She will know nothing about it. Do come. After all, she never gives you anything good. Then the little dogs again said, Nay, nay, we must let it alone. We must not go. But the countryman let them have no peace, until at last they went and got on the table and ate up the breadcrumbs with all their might. But at that very moment the mistress came and seized the stick in great haste and beat them and treated them very harshly. And when they were outside the house, the little dogs said to the countryman, Do, 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 do you see? 
Then the countryman laughed and said, Didn't, didn't, didn't you expect it? So they just had to run away. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 192. The Mongoose There was once upon a time a princess who, high under the battlements in her castle, had an apartment with twelve windows which looked out in every possible direction. And when she climbed up to it and looked around her, she could inspect her whole kingdom. When she looked out of the first, her sight was more keen than that of any other human being. From the second, she could see still better. From the third, more distinctly still. And so it went on until the twelfth, from which she saw everything above the earth and under the earth, and nothing at all could be kept secret from her. Moreover, as she was haughty, and would be subject to no one, but wished to keep the dominion for herself alone, she caused it to be proclaimed that no one should ever be her husband, who could not conceal himself from her so effectually that it should be quite impossible for her to find him. He who tried this, however, and was discovered by her, was to have his head struck off and stuck on a post. Ninety-seven posts with the heads of dead men were already standing before the castle, and no one had come forward for a long time. The princess was delighted and thought to herself, Now I shall be free as long as I live. Then three brothers appeared before her and announced to her that they were desirous of trying their luck. The eldest believed he would be quite safe if he crept into a lime pit, but she saw him from the first window, made him come out and had his head cut off. The second crept into the cellar of the palace, but she perceived him also from the first window, and his fate was sealed. His head was placed on the ninety-ninth post. Then the youngest came to her and entreated her to give him a day for consideration, and also to be so gracious as to overlook it if she should happen to discover him twice. But if he failed the third time, he would look on his life as over. As he was so handsome, and begged so earnestly, she said, Yes, I will grant you that, but you will not succeed. Next day, he meditated for a long time how he should hide himself, but all in vain. Then he seized his gun and went out hunting. He saw a raven, took a good aim at him, and was just going to fire when the bird cried, Don't shoot! I will make it worth your while. He put his gun down, went on, and came to a lake where he surprised a large fish which had come up from the depths below to the surface of the water. When he had aimed at it, the fish cried, Don't shoot, and I will make it worth your while. 
he allowed it to dive down again, went onwards and met a fox which was lame. He fired and missed it, and the fox cried, You had much better come here and draw the fawn out of my foot for me. He did this, but then he wanted to kill the fox and skin it. The fox said, Stop, and I will make it worth your while. The youth let him go, and then as it was evening, returned home. Next day he was to hide himself, but however much he puzzled his brains over it, he did not know where. He went into the forest to the raven and said, I let you live on, so now tell me where I am to hide myself, so that the king's daughter shall not see me. The raven hung his head, and fought it over for a long time. At length he croaked, I have it. He fetched an egg out of his nest, cut it into two parts, and shut the youth inside it, then made it whole again, and seated himself on it. When the king's daughter went to the first window, she could not discover him, nor could she from the others, and she began to be uneasy, but from the eleventh she saw him. She ordered the raven to be shot, and the egg to be brought and broken, and the youth was forced to come out. She said, For once you are excused, but if you do not do better than this, you are lost. Next day he went to the lake, called the fish to him and said, I allowed you to live, now tell me where to hide myself so that the king's daughter may not see me. The fish fought for a while and at last cried, I have it, I will shut you up in my stomach. He swallowed him and went down to the bottom of the lake. The king's daughter looked through her windows, and even from the eleventh did not see him, and was alarmed, but at length from the twelfth she saw him. She ordered the fish to be caught and killed, and then the youth appeared. Everyone can imagine what a state of mind he was in. She said, Twice you are forgiven, but be sure that your head will be set on the hundredth post. On the last day, he went with a heavy heart into the country and met the fox. You know how to find all kinds of hiding places, said he. I let you live. Now advise me where I shall hide myself so that the king's daughter shall not discover me. That's a hard task, answered the fox, looking very thoughtful. At length he cried, I have it, and went with him to a spring dipped himself in it, and came out as a market stallkeeper and dealer in animals. The youth had to dip himself in the water also, and was changed into a small mongoose. The merchant went into the town and showed the pretty little animal, and many persons gathered together to see it. At length the king's daughter came likewise, and she liked it very much. She bought it and gave the merchant a good deal of money for it. Before he gave it over to her, he said to it, When the king's daughter goes to the window, creep quickly under the braids of her hair. And now the time arrived when she was to search for him. 
She went to one window after another in turn, from the first to the eleventh, and did not see him. When she did not see him from the twelfth either, she was full of anxiety and anger, and shut it down with such violence that the glass in every window shivered into a thousand pieces, and the whole castle shook. She went back and felt the mongoose beneath the braids of her hair. Then she seized it and threw it on the ground, exclaiming, Away with you, get out of my sight. It ran to the merchant, and both of them hurried to the spring, in which they plunged and received back their true forms. The youth thanked the fox and said, The raven and the fish are idiots compared with you. You know the right tune to play. There is no denying that. The youth went straight to the palace. The princess was already expecting him and accommodated herself to her destiny. The wedding was solemnized, and now he was king and lord of all the kingdom. He never told her where he had concealed himself for the third time and who had helped him, so she believed that he had done everything by his own skill, and she had a great respect for him, for she thought to herself, He is able to do more than I. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 193, The Master Thief. One day, an old man and his wife were sitting in front of a miserable house, resting a while from their work. Suddenly, a splendid carriage with four black horses came driving up, and a richly dressed man descended from it. The peasant stood up, went to the great man, and asked what he wanted, and in what way he could be useful to him. The stranger stretched out his hand to the old man and said, I want nothing but to enjoy for once a country dish. Cook me some potatoes in the way you always have them, and then I will sit down at your table and eat them with pleasure. The peasant smiled and said, You are a count or a prince or perhaps even a duke. Noble gentlemen often have such fancies, but you shall have your wish. The wife went into the kitchen and began to wash and rub the potatoes, and to make them into balls, as they are eaten by the country folks. While she was busy with this work, the peasant said to the stranger, Come into my garden with me for a while. I have something to do there still. He had dug some holes in the garden, and now wanted to plant some trees in them. Have you no children? asked the stranger, who could help you with your work. No, answered the peasant. I had a son, it is true, but it is long since he went out into the world. He was a ne'er-do-well, sharp and knowing, but he would learn nothing and was full of bad tricks. At last he ran away from me, and since then I have heard nothing of him. The old man took a young tree, put it in a hole, drove in a post beside it, and when he had shoveled in some earth and had trampled it firmly down, 
he tied the stem of the tree above, below, and in the middle, fast to the post by a rope of straw. But tell me, said the stranger, why you don't tie that crooked knotted tree which is lying in the corner there, bent down almost to the ground to a post also, that it may grow straight as well as these. The old man smiled and said, Sir, you speak according to your knowledge. It is easy to see that you are not familiar with gardening. That tree there is old and misshapen. No one can make it straight now. Trees must be trained while they are young. That is how it was with your son, said the stranger. If you had trained him while he was still young, he would not have run away, and now he too must have grown hard and misshapen. Truly it is a long time since he went away, replied the old man. He must have changed. Would you know him again if he were to come to you? asked the stranger. Hardly by his face, replied the peasant, but he has a mark about him, a birthmark on his shoulder that looks like a bean. When he had said that, the stranger pulled off his coat, bared his shoulder and showed the peasant the bean. Good God, cried the old man, you are really my son, and love for his child stirred in his heart. But, he added, how can you be my son if you have become a great lord who lives in wealth and luxury? How have you contrived to do that? Ah, father, answered the son, the young tree was bound to no post and has grown crooked. Now it is too old, it will never be straight again. How have I got all that? I have become a thief, but do not be alarmed. I am a master thief. For me there are neither locks nor bolts. Whatever I desire is mine. Do not imagine that I steal like a common thief. I only take some of the superfluity of the rich. Poor people are safe. I would rather give to them than take anything from them. It is the same with anything which I can have without trouble, cunning and dexterity. I never touch it. Alas, my son, said the father, it still does not please me. A thief is still a thief. I tell you, it will end badly. He took him to his mother, and when she heard that was her son, she wept for joy. But when he told her that he had become a master thief, two streams flowed down over her face. At length she said, even if he has become a thief, he is still my son, and my eyes have beheld him once more. They sat down to table, and once again he ate with his parents the wretched food, which he had not eaten for so long. The father said, If our lord the count up there in the castle learns who you are, and what trade you follow, he will not take you in his arms and cradle you in them as he did when he held you at the font, but will cause you to swing from the gallows. Be easy, father, 
he will do me no harm, for I understand my trade. I will go to him myself this very day. When evening drew near, the master thief seated himself in his carriage and drove to the castle. The count received him civilly, for he took him for a distinguished man. When, however, the stranger made himself known, the count turned pale and was quite silent for some time. At length he said, You are my godson, and on that account mercy shall take the place of justice, and I will deal leniently with you. Since you pride yourself on being a master thief, I will put your art to the proof, but if you do not stand the test, you must marry the rope-maker's daughter, and the croaking of the raven must be your music on the occasion. Lord Count, answered the master thief, think of three things as difficult as you like, and if I do not perform your tasks, do with me what you will. The Count reflected for some minutes, and then said, Well then, in the first place, you shall steal the horse I keep for my own riding, out of the stable. In the next, you shall steal the sheet from beneath the bodies of my wife and myself when we are asleep, without our observing it, and the wedding ring of my wife as well. Thirdly and lastly, you shall steal away out of the church the parson and clerk. Mark what I am saying, for your life depends on it. The master thief went to the nearest town. There he bought the clothes of an old peasant woman and put them on. Then he stained his face brown and painted wrinkles on it as well, so that no one could have recognised him. Then he filled a small cask with old Hungary wine, in which was mixed a powerful sleeping potion. He put the cask in a basket, which he took on his back, and walked with slow and tottering steps to the Count's castle. It was already dark when he arrived. He sat down on a stone in the courtyard and began to cough like an asthmatic old woman, and to rub his hands as if he were cold. In front of the door of the stable some soldiers were lying round a fire. One of them observed the woman and called out to her, Come nearer, old mother, and warm yourself beside us. After all, you have no bed for the night, and must take one where you can find it. The old woman tottered up to them, begged them to lift the basket from her back, and sat down beside them at the fire. "'What have you got in your little cask, old lady?' asked one. "'A good mouthful of wine,' she answered. "'I live by trade. For money and fair words, I am quite ready to let you have a glass.' Let us have it here then, said the soldier, and when he had tasted one glass he said, When wine is good, I like another glass, and had another poured out for himself, and the rest followed his example. 
Hello, comrades, cried one of them to those who were in the stable. Here is an old goody who has wine that is as old as herself. Take a drink. It will warm your stomachs far better than our fire. The old woman carried her cask into the stable. One of the soldiers had seated himself on the saddled riding horse. Another held its bridle in his hand. A third had laid hold of its tail. She poured out as much as they wanted until the spring ran dry. It was not long before the bridle fell from the hand of the one, and he fell down and began to snore. The other left hold of the tail, lay down and snored still louder. The one who was sitting in the saddle did remain sitting, but bent his head almost down to the horse's neck, and slept and blew with his mouth like the fellows of a forge. The soldiers outside had already been asleep for a long time and were lying on the ground motionless, as if dead. When the master thief saw that he had succeeded, he gave the first a rope in his hand instead of the bridle, and the other, who had been holding the tail, a wisp of straw. But what was he to do with the one who was sitting on the horse's back? He did not want to throw him down, for he might have awakened and have uttered a cry. He had a good idea. He unbuckled the girths of the saddle, tied a couple of ropes, which were hanging to a ring, on the wall fast to the saddle, and drew the sleeping rider up into the air on it. Then he twisted the rope round the posts and made it fast. He soon released the horse from the chain, but if he had ridden over the stony pavement of the yard, they would have heard the noise in the castle. So he wrapped the horse's hoofs in old rags, led him carefully out, leapt upon him, and galloped off. When day broke, the master galloped to the castle on the stolen horse. The Count had just got up, and was looking out of the window. "'Good morning, Sir Count,' he cried to him. "'Here is the horse which I have got safely out of the stable.' Just look how beautifully your soldiers are lying there sleeping, and if you will but go into the stable, you will see how comfortable your watchers have made it for themselves. The Count could not help laughing. Then he said, For once you have succeeded, but things won't go so well the second time, and I warn you that if you come before me as a thief, I will handle you, as I would a thief. When the Countess went to bed that night, she closed her hand with the wedding ring tightly together, and the Count said, All the doors are locked and bolted. I will keep awake and wait for the thief, but if he gets in by the window, I will shoot him. The master thief, however, went in the dark to the gallows, cut a poor sinner who was hanging there down from the halter, and carried him on his back to the castle. Then he set a ladder up to the bedroom, put the dead body on his shoulders, and began to climb up. 
When he had got so high that the head of the dead man showed at the window, the Count, who was watching in his bed, fired a pistol at him, and immediately the master let the poor sinner fall down and hid himself in one corner. The night was sufficiently lighted by the moon for the master to see distinctly how the Count got out of the window, onto the ladder, came down, carried the dead body into the garden, and began to dig a hole in which to lay it. Now, thought the thief, the favourable moment has come, stole nimbly out of his corner, and climbed up the ladder straight into the Countess's bedroom. Dear wife, he began in the Count's voice, the thief is dead, but after all he is my godson, and has been more of a scapegoat than a villain. I will not put him to open shame, besides, I am sorry for the parents. I will bury him myself before daybreak in the garden that the thing may not be known. So give me the sheet. I will wrap up the body in it and bury him as a dog buries things by scratching. The Countess gave him the sheet. I tell you what, continued the thief, I have a fit of magnanimity on me. Give me the ring too. The unhappy man risked his life for it. So he may... Take it with him into his grave. She would not gainsay the Count, and although she did it unwillingly, she drew the ring from her finger and gave it to him. The thief made off with both these things and reached home safely before the Count in the garden had finished his work of burying. What a long face the Count did make when the master came next morning and brought him the sheet and the ring. Are you a wizard? said he, who has fetched you out of the grave in which I myself laid you, and brought you to life again? You did not bury me, said the thief, but the poor sinner on the gallows, and he told him exactly how everything had happened, and the Count was forced to own to him that he was a clever, crafty thief. But you have not reached the end yet, he added. You have still to perform the third task, and if you do not succeed in that, all is of no use. The master smiled and returned no answer. When night had fallen, he went with a long sack on his back, a bundle under his arms and a lantern in his hand to the village church. In the sack he had some crabs, and in the bundle short wax candles, he sat down in the churchyard, took out a crab, and stuck a wax candle on his back. Then he lighted the little light, put the crab on the ground, and let it creep about. He took a second out of the sack, and treated it in the same way, and so on, until the last was out of the sack. Then he put on a long black garment that looked like a monk's cowl, and stuck a grey beard on his chin. When at last he was quite unrecognisable, he took the sack in which the crabs had been, went into the church and ascended the pulpit. The clock in the tower was just striking twelve. When the last stroke had sounded, he cried with a loud and piercing voice, Listen, sinful men, the end of all things has come. The last day is at hand. Listen, listen. Whoever wishes to go to heaven with me must creep into the sack. I am Peter who opens and shuts the gate of heaven. 
Behold how the dead outside there in the churchyard are wandering about collecting their bones. Come, come, and creep into the sack. The world is about to be destroyed. The cry echoed through the whole village. The parson and clerk who lived nearest to the church heard it first. And when they saw the lights which were moving about the churchyard, they observed that something unusual was going on, and went into the church. They listened to the sermon for a while, and then the clerk nudged the parson and said, It would not be amiss if we were to use the opportunity together, and before the dawning of the last day, find an easy way of getting to heaven. To tell the truth, answered the parson, that is what I myself have been thinking. So if you are inclined, we will set out on our way. Yes, answered the clerk, but you, the pastor, have the precedence. I will follow. So the parson went first and ascended the pulpit where the master opened his sack. The parson crept in first and then the clerk. The master immediately tied up the sack tightly seized it by the middle, and dragged it down the pulpit steps, and whenever the heads of the two fools bumped against the steps, he cried, We are going over the mountains. Then he drew them through the village in the same way, and when they were passing through puddles, he cried, Now we are going through wet clouds. And when at last he was dragging them up the steps of the castle, he cried, Now we are on the steps of heaven, and will soon be in the outer court. When he had got to the top, he pushed the sack into the pigeon house, and when the pigeons fluttered about, he said, Hear how glad the angels are, and how they are flapping their wings. Then he bolted the door upon them, and went away. Next morning he went to the count, and told him, that he had performed the third task also, and had carried the parson and clerk out of the church. "'Where have you left them?' asked the Lord. "'They are lying upstairs in a sack in the pigeon house, and imagine that they are in heaven.' The Count went up himself, and convinced himself that the master had told the truth. When he had delivered the parson and clerk from their captivity, he said, You are an arch-thief, and have won your wager. For once you escape with a whole skin. But see that you leave my land, for if ever you set foot on it again, you may count on your elevation to the gallows. The arch-thief took leave of his parents, once more went forth into the wide world, and no one has ever heard of him since. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 194. The Drummer A young drummer went out quite alone one evening into the country, and came to a lake on the shore of which he perceived three pieces of white linen lying. What fine linen, said he, and put one piece in his pocket. He returned home, thought no more of what he had found, and went to bed. 
Just as he was going to sleep, it seemed to him as if someone was saying his name. He listened and was aware of a soft voice which cried to him, Drummer, drummer, wake up. As it was a dark night, he could see no one, but it appeared to him that a figure was hovering about his bed. What do you want? he asked. Give me back my dress, answered the voice, that you took away from me last evening by the lake. You shall have it back again, said the drummer, if you will tell me who you are. Ah, replied the voice. I am the daughter of a mighty king, but I have fallen into the power of a witch and am shut up on the glass mountain. I have to bathe in the lake every day with my two sisters, but I cannot fly back again without my dress. My sisters have gone away, but I have been forced to stay behind. I entreat you to give me my dress back. Be easy, poor child, said the drummer. I will willingly give it back to you. He took it out of his pocket and reached it to her in the dark. She snatched it in haste and wanted to go away with it. Stop a moment. Perhaps I can help you. You can only help me by ascending the glass mountain and freeing me from the power of the witch. But you cannot come to the glass mountain, and indeed, if you were quite close to it, you could not ascend it. When I want to do a thing, I always can do it, said the drummer. I am sorry for you, and have no fear of anything, but I do not know the way which leads to the glass mountain. The road goes through the great forest, in which the man-eaters live, she answered. And more than that, I dare not tell you. And then he heard her wings quiver as she flew away. By daybreak, the drummer arose, buckled on his drum, and went without fear straight into the forest. After he'd walked for a while without seeing any giants, he thought to himself, I must wake up the sluggards. And he hung his drum before him and beat such a reveal that the birds flew out of the trees with loud noises. It was not long before a giant who had been lying sleeping among the grass rose up and was as tall as a fir tree. Wretch, cried he, what are you drumming here for and waking me out of my best sleep? I am drumming, he replied, because I want to show the way to many thousands who are following me. What do they want in my forest? demanded the giant. They want to put an end to you and cleanse the forest of such a monster as you are. Aho, said the giant, I will trample you all to death like so many ants. Do you think you can do anything against us? said the drummer. If you stoop to take hold of one, he will jump away and hide himself. But when you are lying down and sleeping, they will come forth from every thicket and creep up to you. Every one of them has a hammer of steel in his belt, and with that they will beat in your skull. The giant grew angry and thought, If I meddle with the crafty folk, it might turn out badly for me. 
I can strangle wolves and bears, but I cannot protect myself from these earthworms. He said, Listen, little fellow, go back again, and I will promise you that for the future I will leave you and your comrades in peace. And if there is anything else you wish for, tell me, for I am quite willing to do something to please you. You have long legs, said the drummer, and can run quicker than I. Carry me to the glass mountain, and I will give my followers a signal to go back, and they shall leave you in peace this time. Come here, worm, said the giant. Seat yourself on my shoulder. I will carry you where you wish to be. The giant lifted him up, and the drummer began to beat his drum up aloft to his heart's delight. The giant thought, that is the signal for the other people to turn back. After a while, a second giant was standing in the road, who took the drummer for the first and stuck him in his buttonhole. The drummer laid hold of the button, which was as large as a dish, held on by it, and looked merrily around. Then they came to a third giant, who took him out of the buttonhole and set him on the rim of his hat. Then the drummer walked backwards and forwards up above and looked over the trees, and when he perceived a mountain in the blue distance, he thought, that must be the glass mountain. And so it was. The giant only made two steps more, and they reached the foot of the mountain where the giant put him down. The drummer demanded to be put on the summit of the glass mountain, but the giant shook his head growled something in his beard, and went back into the forest. And now the poor drummer was standing before the mountain, which was as high as if three mountains were piled on each other, and at the same time as smooth as a looking glass, and did not know how to get up it. He began to climb, but that was useless, for he always slipped back again. If one was a bird now, thought he, but what was the good of wishing? No wings grew for him. While he was standing thus, not knowing what to do, he saw, not far from him, two men who were struggling fiercely together. He went up to them and saw that they were disputing over a saddle which was lying on the ground before them, and which both of them wanted to have. What fools you are, said he, to quarrel about a saddle, when you have not a horse for it. The saddle is worth fighting about, answered one of the men. Whoever sits on it and wishes himself in any place, even if it should be the very end of the earth, gets there the instant he has uttered the wish. The saddle belongs to us in common. It is my turn to ride on it, but the other man will not let me do it. I will soon decide the quarrels, said the drummer, and he went to a short distance and stuck a white rod in the ground. Then he came back and said, Now run to the goal, and whoever gets there first shall ride first. Both put themselves into a trot, but hardly had they gone a couple of steps before the drummer swung himself on the saddle, wished himself on the glass mountain, and before anyone could turn round, he was there. 
On the top of the mountain was a plain. There stood an old stone house, and in front of the house lay a great fish pond. But behind it was a dark forest. He saw neither men nor animals, everything was quiet. Only the wind rustled among the trees, and the clouds moved by quite close above his head. He went to the door and knocked. When he had knocked for the third time, an old woman with a brown face and red eyes opened the door. She had spectacles on her long nose and looked sharply at him. Then she asked what he wanted. Entrance, food and a bed for the night, replied the drummer. That you shall have, said the old woman, if you will perform free services in return. Why not, he answered. I'm not afraid of any kind of work, however hard it may be. The old woman let him go in and gave him some food and a good bed at night. The next morning, when he had had his sleep out, she took a thimble from her wrinkled finger, reached it to the drummer, and said, Go to work now, and empty out the pond with this thimble. But you must have it done before night, and must have sought out all the fishes which are in the water, and laid them side by side according to their kind and size. That is strange work, said the drummer, but he went to the pond and began to empty it. He bailed the whole morning. But what can anyone do to a great lake with a thimble, even if it were to bail for a thousand years? When it was noon, he thought, it is all useless, and whether I work or not, it will come to the same thing. So he gave it up and sat down. Then came a maiden out of the house who set a little basket with food before him and said, What ails you that you sit so sadly here? He looked at her and saw that she was wondrously beautiful. Ah, said he, I cannot finish the first piece of work. How will it be with the others? I came forth to seek a king's daughter who is said to dwell here but I have not found her, and I will go farther. Stay here, said the maiden. I will help you out of your difficulty. You are tired. Lay your head in my lap and sleep. When you awake again, your work will be done. The drummer did not need to be told that twice. As soon as his eyes were shut, she turned a wishing ring and said, Rise, water. Fishes come out. Instantly, the water rose on high like a white mist and moved away with the other clouds, and the fishes sprang on the shore and laid themselves side by side, each according to his size and kind. When the drummer awoke, he saw with amazement that all was done. But the maiden said, One of the fish is not lying with those of its own kind, but quite alone. When the old woman comes tonight and sees that all she demanded has been done, she will ask you, what is this fish lying alone for? Then throw the fish in her face and say, this one shall be for you, old witch. In the evening, the witch came 
and when she had put this question, he threw the fish in her face. She behaved as if she did not notice it and said nothing, but looked at him with malicious eyes. Next morning she said, Yesterday it was too easy for you. I must give you harder work. Today you must hew down the whole of the forest, split the wood into logs and pile them up, and everything must be finished by the evening. She gave him an axe, a mallet, and two wedges. But the axe was made of lead, and the mallet and wedges were of tin. When he began to cut, the edge of the axe turned back, and the mallet and wedges were beaten out of shape. He did not know how to manage, but at midday the maiden came once more with his dinner and comforted him. Lay your head on my lap, said she, and sleep. When you awake, your work will be done. She turned her wishing ring, and in an instant the whole forest fell down with a crash. The wood split and arranged itself in heaps, and it seemed just as if unseen giants were finishing the work. When he awoke, the maiden said, Do you see that the wood is piled up and arranged? One bough alone remains. But when the old woman comes this evening and asks you about that bough, give her a blow with it and say, That is for you, you witch. The old woman came. There you see how easy the work was, said she. But for whom have you left that bough which is lying there still? For you, you witch, he replied, and gave her a blow with it. But she pretended not to feel it, laughed scornfully and said, Early tomorrow morning you shall arrange all the wood in one heap, set fire to it and burn it. He rose at break of day and began to pick up the wood. But how can a single man get a whole forest together? The work made no progress. The maiden, however, did not desert him in his need. She brought him his food at noon, and when he had eaten, he laid his head on her lap and went to sleep. When he awoke, the entire pile of wood was burning in one enormous flame which stretched its tongues out into the sky. Listen to me, said the maiden. When the witch comes, she will give you all kinds of orders. Do whatever she asks you without fear, and then she will not be able to get the better of you. But if you are afraid, the fire will lay hold of you and consume you. At last, when you have done everything, seize her with both your hands and throw her into the middle of the fire. The maiden departed, and the old woman came sneaking up to him. Oh, I am cold, said she, but that is a fire that burns. It warms my old bones for me, and does me good. But there is a log lying there which won't burn. Bring it out for me. When you have done that, you are free, and may go where you like. Come, go in with a good will. The drummer did not reflect long. 
he sprang into the middle of the flames, but they did not hurt him, and could not even singe a hair of his head. He carried the log out and laid it down. Hardly, however, had the wood touched the earth than it was transformed, and the beautiful maiden who had helped him in his need stood before him, and by the silken and shining golden garments which she wore, he knew right well that she was the king's daughter. But the old woman laughed venomously and said, You think you have her safe, but you have not got her yet. Just as she was about to fall on the maiden and take her away, the youth seized the old woman with both his hands, raised her up on high and threw her into the jaws of the fire, which closed over her as if it were delighted that an old witch was to be burned. Then the king's daughter looked at the drummer, and when she saw that he was a handsome youth and remembered how he had risked his life to deliver her, she gave him her hand and said, You have ventured everything for my sake, but I also will do everything for yours. Promise to be true to me, and you shall be my husband. We shall not want for riches, we shall have enough with what the witch has gathered together here. She led him into the house, where there were chests and coffers crammed with the old woman's treasures. The maiden left the gold and silver where it was, and took only the precious stones. She would not stay any longer on the glass mountain, so the drummer said to her, "'Seat yourself by me on my saddle.' and then we will fly down like birds. I do not like the old saddle, said she. I need only turn my wishing ring, and we shall be at home. Very well, then, answered the drummer. Then wish us in front of the town gate. In the twinkling of an eye, they were there, but the drummer said, I will just go to my parents and tell them the news. Wait for me outside here. I shall soon be back. Ah, said the king's daughter, I beg you to be careful. On your arrival, do not kiss your parents on the right cheek, or else you will forget everything, and I shall stay behind here outside, alone and deserted. How can I forget you, said he, and promised her to come back very soon, and gave his hand upon it. When he went into his father's house, he had changed so much that no one knew who he was, for the three days which he had passed on the glass mountain had been three years. Then he made himself known, and his parents fell on his neck with joy, and his heart was so moved that he forgot what the maiden had said, and kissed them on both cheeks. But when he had given them the kiss on the right cheek, every thought of the king's daughter vanished from him. He emptied out his pockets and laid handfuls of the largest jewels on the table. The parents had not the least idea what to do with the riches. Then the father built a magnificent castle, all surrounded by gardens, woods and meadows, as if a prince were going to live in it 
And when it was ready, the mother said, I have found a maiden for you, and the wedding shall be in three days. The son was content to do as his parents desired. The poor king's daughter had stood for a long time outside the town waiting for the return of the young man. When evening came, she said, He must certainly have kissed his parents on the right cheek and has forgotten me. Her heart was full of sorrow. She wished herself into a solitary little hut in a forest and would not return to her father's court. Every evening she went into the town and passed the young man's house. He often saw her, but he no longer knew her. At length she heard the people saying, The wedding will take place tomorrow. Then she said, I will try to see if I can win his heart back. On the first day of the wedding ceremonies, she turned her wishing ring and said, A dress as bright as the sun. Instantly the dress lay before her, and it was as bright as if it had been woven of real sunbeams. When all the guests were assembled, she entered the hall. Everyone was amazed at the beautiful dress and the bride most of all, and as pretty dresses were the things she had most delight in, she went to the stranger and asked if she would sell it to her. Not for money, she answered, but if I may pass the first night outside the door of the room where your betrothed sleeps, I will give it up to you. The bride could not overcome her desire and consented, but she mixed a sleeping potion with the wine her betrothed took at night, which made him fall into a deep sleep. When all had become quiet, the king's daughter crouched down by the door of the bedroom, opened it just a little and cried, Drummer, drummer, I pray you hear, have you forgotten you held me dear? that on the glass mountain we sat hour by hour, that I rescued your life from the witch's power. Did you not pledge your trove to me? Drummer, drummer, listen to me. But it was all in vain. The drummer did not awake, and when morning dawned, the king's daughter was forced to go back again as she came. On the second evening, she turned her wishing ring and said, a dress as silvery as the moon. When she appeared at the feast in the dress which was as soft as moonbeams, it again excited the desire of the bride, and the king's daughter gave it to her for permission to pass the second night also outside the door of the bedroom. Then, in the stillness of the night, she cried, Drummer, drummer, I pray you hear, have you forgotten you held me dear, that on the glass mountain we sat hour by hour, that I rescued your life from the witch's power? Did you not pledge your trove to me? Drummer, drummer, listen to me. But the drummer, who was stupefied with the sleeping potion, could not be aroused. Sadly, next morning she went back to her hut in the forest. But the people in the house had heard the lamentation of the stranger, Maiden, and told the bridegroom about it. 
They told him also that it was impossible that he could hear anything of it because the maiden he was going to marry had poured a sleeping potion into his wine. On the third evening the king's daughter turned her wishing ring and said, A dress glittering like the stars. When she showed herself at the feast, the bride was quite beside herself with the splendour of the dress, which far surpassed the others. And she said, I must and will have it. The maiden gave it as she had given the others for permission to spend the night outside the bridegroom's door. The bridegroom, however, did not drink the wine, which was handed to him before he went to bed, but poured it behind the bed, and when everything was quiet, he heard a sweet voice which called to him, Drummer, drummer, I pray you hear, have you forgotten you held me dear, that on the glass mountain we sat hour by hour, that I rescued your life from the witch's power? Did you not pledge your trove to me? Drummer, drummer, listen to me. Suddenly his memory returned to him. Ah, cried he, how can I have acted so unfaithfully? But the kiss which in the joy of my heart I gave my parents on the right cheek, that is to blame for it all. That is what stupefied me. He sprang up, took the king's daughter by the hand, and led her to his parents' bed. This is my true bride, said he. If I marry the other, I shall do a great wrong. The parents, when they heard how everything had happened, gave their consent. Then the lights in the hall were lighted again. Drums and trumpets were brought. Friends and relations were invited to come. And the real wedding was solemnized with great rejoicing. The first bride received the beautiful dresses as a compensation and declared herself satisfied. Grimm's Household Tales Translated by Margaret Hunt Read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 195, The Ear of Corn. In former times, when God himself still walked the earth, the fruitfulness of the soil was much greater than it is now. Then the ears of corn did not bear fifty or sixty, but four or five hundred. Then the corn grew from the bottom to the very top of the stalk, and according to the length of the stalk was the length of the ear. Men, however, are so made that when they are too well off, they no longer value the blessings which come from God, but grow indifferent and careless. One day a woman was passing by a cornfield when her little child, who was running beside her, fell into a puddle and dirtied her frock. At this the mother tore up a handful of the beautiful ears of corn and cleaned the frock with them. When the Lord, who just then came by, saw that, he was angry and said, Henceforth shall the stalks of corn bear no more ears. Men are no longer worthy of heavenly gifts. The bystanders who heard this were terrified and fell on their knees and prayed that he would still leave something on the stalks, even if the people were undeserving of it, for the sake of the innocent birds which would otherwise have to starve. 
The Lord, who foresaw their suffering, had pity on them and granted the request. So the ears were left as they now grow. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 196. The Grave Mound. A rich farmer was one day standing in his yard inspecting his fields and gardens. The corn was growing up vigorously and the fruit trees were heavily laden with fruit. The grain of the year before still lay in such immense heaps on the floors that the rafters could hardly bear it. Then he went into the stable where there were well-fed oxen, fat cows and horses bright as a looking-glass. At length he went back into his sitting-room and cast a glance at the iron chest in which his money lay. While he was thus standing surveying his riches, all at once there was a loud knock close by him. The knock was not at the door of his room, but at the door of his heart. It opened and he heard a voice which said to him, Have you done good to your family with it? Have you considered the necessities of the poor? Have you shared your bread with the hungry? Have you been contented with what you have, or did you always desire to have more? The heart was not slow in answering. I have been hard and pitiless, and have never shown any kindness to my own family. If a beggar came, I turned away my eyes from him. I have not troubled myself about God." but have thought only of increasing my wealth. If everything which the sky covers had been mine, I should still not have had enough. When he was aware of this answer, he was greatly alarmed. His knees began to tremble, and he was forced to sit down. Then there was another knock, but the knock was at the door of his room. It was his neighbour, a poor man, who had a number of children whom he could no longer satisfy with food. I know, thought the poor man, that my neighbour is rich, but he is as hard as he is rich. I don't believe he will help me, but my children are crying for bread, so I will venture it. He said to the rich man, You do not readily give away anything that is yours, but I stand here like one who feels the water rising above his head. My children are starving. Lend me four measures of corn. The rich man looked at him long, and then the first sunbeam of mercy began to melt away a drop of the ice of greediness. I will not lend you four measures, he answered, but I will make you a present of eight. But you must fulfil one condition. What am I to do, said the poor man? When I am dead, you shall watch for three nights by my grave. The peasant was disturbed in his mind at this request, but in the need in which he was, he would have consented to anything. He accepted, therefore and carried the corn home with him. 
It seemed as if the rich man had foreseen what was about to happen, for when three days had gone by, he suddenly dropped down dead. No one knew exactly how it came to pass, but no one grieved for him. When he was buried, the poor man remembered his promise. He would willingly have been released from it, but he thought, After all, he acted kindly by me. I have fed my hungry children with his corn, and even if that were not the case, where I have once given my promise, I must keep it. At nightfall, he went into the churchyard and seated himself on the grave mound. Everything was quiet, only the moon above the grave, and frequently an owl flew past and uttered her melancholy cry. When the sun rose, the poor man took himself in safety to his home, and in the same manner the second night passed quietly by. On the evening of the third day, he felt a strange uneasiness. It seemed to him that something was about to happen. When he went out, he saw, by the churchyard wall, a man whom he had never seen before. He was no longer young, had scars on his face, and his eyes looked sharply and eagerly around. He was entirely covered with an old cloak, and nothing was visible but his great riding boots. What are you looking for here? the peasant asked. Are you not afraid of the lonely churchyard? I am looking for nothing, he answered. I am afraid of nothing. I am like the youngster who went forth to learn how to shiver and had his labour for his pains, but got the king's daughter to wed and great wealth with her. Only I have remained poor. I am nothing but a paid-off soldier, and I mean to pass the night here, because I have no other shelter. If you are without fear, said the peasant, stay with me, and help me to watch the grave there. To keep watch is a soldier's business, he replied. Whatever we fall in with here, whether it be good or bad, we will share it between us. The peasant agreed to this, and they seated themselves on the grave together. All was quiet until midnight, when suddenly a shrill whistling was heard in the air, and the two watchers perceived the evil one standing boldly before them. Be off, you ragamuffins, cried he to them. The man who lies in that grave belongs to me. I want to take him, and if you don't go away, I will wring your necks. Lord of the Red Feather, said the soldier, you are not my captain. I have no need to obey you, and I have not yet learned how to fear. Go away. We shall stay sitting here. The devil thought to himself, Money is the best thing with which to get hold of these two vagabonds. So he began to play a softer tune, and asked quite kindly if they would not accept a bag of money and go home with it. That is worth listening to, answered the soldier. 
but one bag of gold won't serve us if you will give as much as will go into one of my boots. We will quit the field for you and go away. I have not so much as that about me, said the devil, but I will fetch it. In the neighbouring town lives a money changer who is a good friend of mine and will readily advance it to me. When the devil had vanished, the soldier took his left boot off and said, We will soon pull a trick on the charcoal burner. Just give me your knife, comrade. He cut the sole off the boot and put it in the high grass near the grave on the edge of a hole that was half overgrown. That will do, said he. Now the chimney sweep may come. They both sat down and waited, and it was not long before the devil returned with a small bag of gold in his hand. Just pour it in, said the soldier, raising up the boot a little, but that won't be enough. The black one shook out all that was in the bag. The gold fell through, and the boot remained empty. Stupid devil, cried the soldier. It won't do. Didn't I say so at once? Go back again and bring more. The devil shook his head, went, and in an hour's time came with a much larger bag under his arm. Now pour it in, cried the soldier, but I doubt the boot will be full. The gold clinked as it fell, but the boot remained empty. The devil looked in himself with his burning eyes and convinced himself of the truth. You have shamefully big calves to your legs, cried he, and made a wry face. Did you think, replied the soldier, that I had a cloven foot like you? Since when have you been so stingy? See that you get more gold together, or our bargain will come to nothing. The wicked one went off again. This time he stayed away longer, and when at length he appeared, he was panting under the weight of a sack which lay on his shoulders. He emptied it into the boot, which was just as far from being filled as before. He became furious, and was just going to tear the boot out of the soldier's hands, but at that moment the first ray of the rising sun brought forth from the sky, and the evil spirit fled away with loud shrieks. The poor soul was saved. The peasant wished to divide the gold, but the soldier said, Give what falls to my lot to the poor. I will come with you to your cottage, and together we will live in rest and peace on what remains as long as God is pleased to permit. Grimm's Household Tales Translated by Margaret Hunt Read by Paul Martin This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 197 Old Rinkrank There was once upon a time a king who had a daughter, and he caused a glass mountain to be made, and said that whoever could cross to the other side of it without falling should have his daughter as wife. 
Then there was one who loved the king's daughter, and he asked the king if he might have her. Yes, said the king, if you can cross the mountain without falling, you shall have her. And the princess said she would go over it with him, and would hold him if he were about to fall. So they set out together to go over it, and when they were halfway up, the princess slipped and fell, and the glass mountain opened and shut her up inside it, and her betrothed could not see where she had gone, for the mountain closed immediately. Then he wept and lamented much, and the king was miserable too, and had the mountain broken open, where she had been lost, and thought he would be able to get her out again. But they could not find the place into which she had fallen. Meanwhile the king's daughter had fallen quite deep down into the earth into a great cave. An old fellow, with a very long grey beard, came to meet her, and told her, that if she would be his servant, and do everything he bade her, she might live. If not, he would kill her. So she did all he bade her. In the mornings, he took his ladder out of his pocket, and set it up against the mountain, and climbed to the top by its help, and then he drew up the ladder after him. The princess had to cook his dinner, make his bed, and do all his work, and when he came home again, he always brought with him a heap of gold and silver. When she had lived with him for many years and had grown quite old, he called her Mother Man's Rot, and she had to call him Old Rinkrank. Then once when he was out, and she had made his bed and washed his dishes, she shut the doors and windows all fast, and there was one little window through which the light shone in, and this she left open. When old Rinkrank came home, he knocked at his door and cried, Mother Man's Rot, open the door for me. No, said she, old Rinkrank, I will not open the door for you. Then he said, Here stand I, poor Rinkrank, on my seventeen long shanks, on my weary worn out foot, wash my dishes, Mother Man's Rot. I have washed your dishes already, said she. Then again he said, Here stand I, poor Rinkrank, on my seventeen long shanks, on my weary worn-out foot. Make my bed, mother man's rot. I have made your bed already, said she. Then again he said, Here stand I, poor Rinkrank, on my seventeen long shanks, on my weary worn-out foot. Open the door. Mother Man's Rot. Then he ran all round his house, and saw that the little window was open, and thought, I will look in, and see what she can be about, and why she will not open the door for me. He tried to peep in, but could not get his head through, because of his long beard. So he first put his beard through the open window, but just as he had got it through, Mother Man's Rot came by and pulled the window down with a cord, which she had tied to it, and his beard was shut in fast. Then he began to cry most piteously, for it hurt him very much, and to entreat her to release him again. But she did not until he gave her the ladder, 
with which he ascended the mountain. Then, whether he wanted to or not, he had to tell her where the ladder was, and she fastened a very long ribbon to the window, and then she set up the ladder and ascended the mountain, and when she was at the top of it, she opened the window. She went to her father and told him all that had happened to her. The king rejoiced greatly, and her betrothed was still there. And they went and dug up the mountain and found old Rinkrank inside it, with all his gold and silver. Then the king had old Rinkrank put to death, and took all his gold and silver. The princess married her betrothed, and lived right happily in great magnificence and joy. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 198. The Crystal Ball. There was once an enchantress who had three sons who loved each other as brothers, but the old woman did not trust them and thought they wanted to steal her power from her. So she changed the eldest into an eagle, which was forced to dwell in the rocky mountains, and was often seen sweeping in great circles in the sky. The second she changed into a whale, which lived in the deep sea, and all that was seen of it was that it sometimes spouted up a great jet of water in the air. Each of them bore his human form, for only two hours daily. The third son, who was afraid she might change him into a raging wild beast, a bear perhaps, or a wolf, went secretly away. He had heard that a king's daughter, who was bewitched, was imprisoned in the castle of the golden sun, and was waiting for deliverance. Those, however, who tried to free her risked their lives. Twenty-three youths had already died a miserable death, and now only one other might make the attempt after which no more must come. And as his heart was without fear, he had the idea of seeking out the castle of the Golden Sun. He had already travelled about for a long time without being able to find it, when he came by chance into a great forest and did not know the way out of it. All at once he saw in the distance two giants who made a sign to him with their hands and when he came to them they said, We are quarrelling about a cap and which of us it is to belong to and as we are equally strong neither of us can get the better of the other. The small men are cleverer than we are so we will leave the decision to you. How can you dispute about an old cap, said the youth? You do not know what properties it has. It is a wishing cap. Whoever puts it on can wish himself away wherever he likes, and in an instant he will be there. Give me the cap, said the youth. I will go a short distance off, and when I call you, you must run a race, 
and the cap shall belong to the one who gets first to me. He put it on and went away, and thought of the king's daughter, forgot the giants, and walked continually onward. At length he sighed from the very bottom of his heart and cried, Ah, if I were but at the castle of the golden sun! And hardly had the words passed his lips than he was standing on a high mountain before the gate of the castle. He entered and went through all the rooms until in the last he found the king's daughter. But how shocked he was when he saw her! She had an ashen grey face full of wrinkles, bleary eyes and red hair. Are you the king's daughter, whose beauty the whole world praises? cried he. Ah, she answered, this is not my form. Human eyes can only see me in this state of ugliness, but that you may know what I am like. Look in the mirror. It does not let itself be misled. It will show you my image as it is in truth. She gave him the mirror in his hand, and he saw in it the likeness of the most beautiful maiden on earth, and saw, too, how the tears were rolling down her cheeks with grief. Then he said, How can you be set free? I fear no danger. She said, He who gets the crystal ball and holds it before the enchanter will destroy his power with it, and I shall resume my true shape. Ah, she added, so many have already gone to meet death for this, and you are so young, I grieve that you should encounter such great danger. Nothing can keep me from doing it, said he, but tell me what I must do. You shall know everything, said the king's daughter, when you descend the mountain on which the castle stands. A wild bull will stand below by a spring, and you must fight with it, and if you had the luck to kill it, a fiery bird will spring out of it which bears in its body a burning egg, and in the egg the crystal ball lies like a yoke. The bird will not, however, let the egg fall, until forced to do so, and if it falls on the ground, it will flame up and burn everything that is near, and melt even ice itself, and with it the crystal ball, and then all your trouble will have been in vain. The youth went down to the spring, where the bull snorted and bellowed at him. After a long struggle, he plunged his sword in the animal's body and it fell down. Instantly, a fiery bird arose from it, and it was about to fly away, but the young man's brother, the eagle, who was passing between the clouds, swooped down, hunted it away to the sea, and struck it with his beak, until in its extremity it let the egg fall. The egg did not, however, fall into the sea, but on a fisherman's hut, which stood on the shore, and the hut began at once to smoke, and was about to break out into flames, then arose in the sea waves as high as a house, they streamed over the hut, 
and subdued the fire. The other brother, the whale, had come swimming to them and had driven the water up on high. When the fire was extinguished, the youth sought for the egg and happily found it. It was not yet melted, but the shell was broken by being so suddenly cooled with the water, and he could take out the crystal ball unhurt. When the youth went to the enchanter and held it before him, the latter said, My power is destroyed, and from this time forth you are the king of the castle of the golden sun. With this you can likewise give back to your brothers their human form. Then the youth hastened to the king's daughter, and when he entered the room, she was standing there in the full splendor of her beauty, and joyfully they exchanged rings with each other. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 199. Maid Maline. There was once a king who had a son who asked in marriage the daughter of a mighty king. She was called Maid Maline, and was very beautiful. As her father wished to give her to another, the prince was rejected. But as they both loved each other with all their hearts, they would not give up each other. And Maid Maline said to her father, I can and will take no other for my husband. Then the king flew into a passion and ordered a dark tower to be built, into which no ray of sunlight or moonlight should enter. When it was finished, he said, In that you shall be imprisoned for seven years, and then I will come and see if your perverse spirit is broken. Meat and drink for the seven years were carried into the tower, and then she and her waiting maid were led into it and walled up and thus cut off from the sky and from the earth. There they sat in the darkness and knew not when day or night began. The king's son often went round and round the tower and called their names, but no sound from outside pierced through the thick walls. What else could they do? but lament and complain. Meanwhile the time passed, and by the diminution of the food and drink they knew that the seven years were coming to an end. They thought the moment of their deliverance had come, but no stroke of the hammer was heard. No stone fell out of the wall, and it seemed to Maid Maline that her father had forgotten her. As they only had food for a short time longer and saw a miserable death awaiting them, Maid Maline said, We must try our last chance and see if we can break through the wall. She took the bread knife and picked and bored at the mortar of a stone, and when she was tired, the waiting maid took her turn. With great labour they succeeded in getting out one stone and then a second and a third and when three days were over, the first ray of light fell on their darkness, and at last the opening was so large that they could look out. The sky was blue, 
and a fresh breeze played on their faces. But how melancholy! Everything looked all around. Her father's castle lay in ruins. The town and the villages were so far as could be seen destroyed by fire. The fields far and wide laid to waste, and no human being was visible. When the opening in the wall was large enough for them to slip through, the waiting maid sprang down first, and then Maid Maline followed. But where were they to go? The enemy had ravaged the whole kingdom, driven away the king, and slain all the inhabitants. They wandered forth to seek another country, but nowhere did they find a shelter or a human being to give them a mouthful of bread. And their need was so great that they were forced to appease their hunger with nettles. When after long journeying they came into another country, they tried to get work everywhere. But wherever they knocked, they were turned away, and no one would have pity on them. At last they arrived in a large city, and went to the royal palace. There also they were ordered to go away. But at last the cook said that they might stay in the kitchen, and be kitchen maids. The son of the king, in whose kingdom they were, was, however, the very man who had been betrothed to Maid Maline. His father had chosen another bride for him, whose face was as ugly as her heart was wicked. The wedding was fixed, and the maid had already arrived. But because of her great ugliness, however, she shut herself in her room and allowed no one to see her, and Maid Maline had to take her meals from the kitchen. When the day came for the bride and the bridegroom to go to church, she was ashamed of her ugliness, and afraid that if she showed herself in the streets, she would be mocked and laughed at by the people. Then said she to Maid Maline, "A great piece of luck has befallen you. I have sprained my foot and cannot well walk through the streets. You shall put on my wedding clothes and take my place. A greater honour than that you cannot have." Maid Maline, however, refused it and said. I wish for no honour which is not suitable for me. It was in vain too that the bride offered her gold. At last, she said angrily, "If you do not obey me, it shall cost you your life. I have but to speak the word, and your head will lie at your feet." Then she was forced to obey and put on the bride's magnificent clothes and all her jewels. When she entered the royal hall. Every one was amazed at her great beauty, and the king said to his son, "This is the bride whom I have chosen for you, and whom you must lead to church." The bridegroom was astonished and thought, "She is like Maid Maline, and I should believe that it was she herself, but she has long been shut up in the tower or dead." He took her by the hand and led her to church. On the way was a nettle bush, and she said, "O nettle bush, little nettle bush, what do you hear alone? I have known the time when I ate you unboiled, when I ate you unroasted. What are you saying?" asked the king's son. "Nothing," she replied. "I was only thinking of Maid Maline." He was surprised that she knew about her. 
but kept silence. When they came to the footplank into the churchyard, she said, Footbridge, do not break, for I am not the true bride. What are you saying there? asked the king's son. Nothing, she replied. I was only thinking of Maid Meline. Do you know Maid Meline? No, she answered. How should I know her? I've only heard of her. When they came to the church door, she said once more, Church door break not. I am not the true bride. What are you saying there? asked he. Ah, she answered, I was only thinking of Maid Meline. Then he took out a precious chain, put it round her neck, and fastened the clasp. Thereupon they entered the church, and the priests joined their hands together before the altar and married them. He led her home, but she did not speak a single word the whole way. When they got back to the royal palace, she hurried into the bride's chamber, put off the magnificent clothes and the jewels, dressed herself in her grey gown, and kept nothing but the jewel on her neck, which she had received from the bridegroom. When the night came, and the bride was to be led into the prince's apartment, she let her veil fall over her face, that he might not observe the deception. As soon as everyone had gone away, he said to her, What did you say to the nettle bush which was growing by the wayside? To which nettle bush? asked she. I do not talk to nettle bushes. If you did not do it, then you are not the true bride, said he. So she thought to herself and said, I must go out unto my maid who keeps my thoughts for me. She went out and sought Maid Meline. Girl, what have you been saying to the nettle? I said nothing but, O oh, nettle bush, little nettle bush, what do you hear alone? I have known the time when I ate you unboiled, when I ate you unroasted. The bride ran back into the chamber and said, I know now what I said to the nettle, and she repeated the words, which she had just heard. But what did you say to the footbridge when we went over it? asked the king's son. To the footbridge, she answered, I don't talk to footbridges. Then you are not the true bride. She again said, I must go out unto my maid, who keeps my thoughts for me. And ran out and found Maid Meline. Girl, what did you say to the footbridge? I said nothing but, Footbridge, do not break. I am not the true bride. That costs you your life, cried the bride. But she hurried into the room and said, I know now what I said to the footbridge. And she repeated the words. But what did you say to the church door? To the church door, she replied. I don't talk to church doors. Then you are not the true bride. She went out and found Maid Meline and said, Girl, what did you say to the church door? I said nothing but, Church door break not. I am not the true bride. That will break your neck for you, cried the bride, and flew into a terrible passion, 
but she hastened back into the room and said, I know now what I said to the church door, and she repeated the words, But where have you the jewel which I gave you at the church door? What jewel? she answered. You did not give me any jewel. I myself put it round your neck, and I myself fastened it. If you do not know that, you are not the true bride. He drew the veil from her face, and when he saw her immeasurable ugliness, he sprang back terrified and said, How did you get here? Who are you? I am your betrothed bride. But because I feared lest the people should mock me when they saw me out of doors, I commanded the kitchen maid to dress herself in my clothes and go to church instead of me. Where is the girl? said he. I want to see her. Go and bring her here. She went out and told the servants that the kitchen maid was an impostor and that they must take her out into the courtyard and strike off her head. The servants laid hold of Maid Maline and wanted to drag her out, but she screamed so loudly for help that the king's son heard her voice, hurried out of his chamber, and ordered them to set the maiden free instantly. Lights were brought, and then he saw on her neck the gold chain which he had given her at the church door. You are the true bride, said he, who went with me to the church. Come with me now to my room. When they were both alone, he said, On the way to church, you did name Maid Maline, who was my betrothed bride. If I could believe it possible, I should think she was standing before me. You are like her in every respect. She answered, I am Maid Maline who for your sake was imprisoned seven years in the darkness, who suffered hunger and thirst, and has lived so long in wanton poverty. Today, however, the sun is shining on me once more. I was married to you in the church, and I am your lawful wife. Then they kissed each other, and were happy all the days of their lives. The false bride was rewarded for what she had done, by having her head cut off. The tower in which Maid Maline had been imprisoned remained standing for a long time, and when the children passed by it they sang, Cling clang Gloria, who sits within this tower? A king's daughter she sits within, a sight of her I cannot win. The wall it will not break, the stone cannot be pierced. Little Hans with your coat so gay, follow me, follow me fast as you may. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 200. The Boots of Buffalo Leather A soldier who is afraid of nothing troubles himself about nothing. One of this kind had received his discharge, and as he had learnt no trade and could earn nothing, he travelled about and begged alms of kind people. He had an old waterproof cloak on his back and a pair of riding boots of buffalo leather, which were still left to him. 
One day he was walking, he knew not where, straight out into the open country, and at length came to a forest. He did not know where he was, but he saw sitting on the trunk of a tree, which had been cut down, a man who was well dressed and wore a green hunting coat. The soldier shook hands with him, sat down on the grass by his side and stretched out his legs. I see you have good boots on, which are well polished, said he to the hunter. But if you had to travel about as I have, they would not last long. Look at mine. They are of buffalo leather and have been worn for a long time. But in them I can go through thick and thin. After a while the soldier got up and said, I can stay no longer. Hunger drives me onwards. But, brother Bright Boots, where does this road lead to? I don't know that myself, answered the hunter. I've lost my way in the forest. Then you are in the same plight as I, said the soldier. Birds of a feather flock together. Let us remain together and seek our way. The hunter smiled a little and they walked on further and further until night fell. We do not get out of the forest, said the soldier, but there in the distance I see a light shining which will help us to find something to eat. They found a stone house, knocked at the door, and an old woman opened it. We are looking for quarters for the night, said the soldier, and some lining for our stomachs, for mine is as empty as an old knapsack. You cannot stay here, answered the old woman. This is a robber's house, and you would do wisely to get away before they come home, or you will be lost. It won't be so bad as that, answered the soldier. I've not had a mouthful for two days. And whether I am murdered here or die of hunger in the forest is all the same to me. I shall go in. The hunter would not follow, but the soldier drew him in with him by the sleeve. Come, my dear brother, we shall not come to an end so quickly as that. The old woman had pity on them and said, Creep in here behind the stove. And if they leave anything, I will give it to you on the sly, when they are asleep. Scarcely were they in the corner, before twelve robbers came bursting in, seated themselves at the table, which was already laid, and vehemently demanded some food. The old woman brought in some great dishes of roast meat, and the robbers enjoyed that thoroughly. When the smell of the food ascended the nostrils of the soldier, he said to the hunter, I cannot hold out any longer. I shall seat myself at the table and eat with them. You will bring us to destruction, said the hunter, and held him back by the arm. But the soldier began to cough loudly. When the robbers heard that, they threw away their knives and forks, leapt up and discovered the two who were behind the stove. Aha, gentlemen, are you in the corner, cried they. What are you doing here? Have you been sent as spies? 
Wait a while, and you shall learn how to fly on a dry bough. But do be civil, said the soldier. I am hungry. Give me something to eat, and then you can do what you like with me. The robbers were astonished, and the captain said, I see that you have no fear. Well, you shall have some food, but after that you must die. We shall see, said the soldier, and seated himself at the table, and began to cut away valiantly at the roast meat. Brother Bright Boots, come and eat, cried he to the hunter. You must be as hungry as I am, and cannot have better roast meat at home. But the hunter would not eat. The robbers looked at the soldier in astonishment and said, The rascal uses no ceremony. After a while, he said, I have had enough food. Now get me something good to drink. The captain was in the mood to humour him in this also, and called to the old woman, Bring a bottle out of the cellar, and make it the best. The soldier drew the cork out with a loud noise, and then went with the bottle to the hunter and said, Pay attention, brother, and you shall see something that will surprise you. I am now going to drink the health of the whole clan. Then he brandished the bottle over the heads of the robbers and cried, Long life to you all, but with your mouths open and your right hands lifted up. And then he drank a hearty gulp. Scarcely were the words said than they all sat motionless as if made of stone, and their mouths were open and their right hands stretched up in the air. The hunter said to the soldier, I see that you are acquainted with tricks of another kind, but now come and let us go home. Oh ho, my dear brother, but that would be marching away far too soon. We have conquered the enemy and must first take the booty. Those men there are sitting fast and are opening their mouths with astonishment. But they will not be allowed to move until I permit them. Come, eat and drink. The old woman had to bring another bottle of the best wine, and the soldier would not stir until he had eaten enough to last for three days. At last, when day came, he said, Now it is time to strike our tents, and that our march may be a short one. The old woman shall show us the nearest way to the town. When they had arrived there, he went to his old comrades and said, Out in the forest I have found a nest full of gallows birds. Come with me and we will take it. The soldier led them and said to the hunter, You must go back again with me to see how they shake when we seize them by the feet. He placed the men round about the robbers and then he took the bottle drank a mouthful, brandished it above them, and cried, Live again! Instantly they all regained the power of movement, but were thrown down and bound hand and foot with cords. Then the soldier ordered them to be thrown into a cart, as if they had been so many sacks, and said, Now, drive them straight to prison. 
The hunter, however, took one of the men aside and gave him another commission besides. Brother Brightboots, said the soldier, we have safely routed the enemy and been well fed. Now we will quietly walk behind them as if we were stragglers. When they approached the town, the soldier saw a crowd of people pouring through the gate of the town who were raising loud cries of joy and waving green boughs in the air. Then he saw that the entire royal bodyguard was coming up. What can this mean? said he to the hunter. Do you not know, he replied, that the king has for a long time been absent from his kingdom, and that today he is returning, and everyone is going to meet him. But where is the king? said the soldier. I do not see him. Here he is, answered the hunter. I am the king, and have announced my arrival. Then he opened his hunting coat, and his royal garments were visible. The soldier was alarmed, and fell on his knees and begged him to forgive him for having, in his ignorance, treated him as an equal, and spoken to him by such a name. But the king shook hands with him, and said, You are a brave soldier, and have saved my life. You shall never again be in want. I will take care of you, and if you would ever like to eat a piece of roast meat as good as that in the robber's house, come to the royal kitchen. But if you would drink to health, you must first ask my permission. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 201. The Golden Key. In the winter time, when deep snow lay on the ground, a poor boy was forced to go out on a sled to fetch wood. When he had gathered it together and packed it, he wished, as he was so frozen with cold, not to go home at once, but to light a fire and warm himself a little. So he scraped away the snow, and as he was thus clearing the ground, he found a tiny gold key. Hereupon he thought that where the key was, the lock must be also, and dug in the ground and found an iron chest. If the key does but fit it, thought he, no doubt there are precious things in that little box. He searched, but no keyhole was there. At last he discovered one, but so small that it was hardly visible. He tried it, and the key fitted it exactly. Then he turned it once round, and now we must wait until he has quite unlocked it and opened the lid and then we shall learn what wonderful things were lying in that box. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend 1. St. Joseph in the Forest There was once on a time a mother who had three daughters, the eldest of whom was rude and wicked, the second much better, 
although she had her faults, but the youngest was a pious good girl. The mother was, however, so strange that it was just the eldest daughter whom she most loved, and she could not bear the youngest. On this account she often sent the poor girl out into the great forest in order to get rid of her, for she thought she would lose herself and never come back again. But the guardian angel, which every good child has, did not forsake her, but always brought her into the right path again. Once, however, the guardian angel behaved as if he were not there, and the child could not find her way out of the forest again. She walked on constantly until evening came, and then she saw a tiny light burning in the distance, ran up to it at once, and came to a little hut. She knocked, the door opened, and she came to a second door, where she knocked again. An old man, who had a snow-white beard, and looked venerable, opened it for her, and he was no other than Saint Joseph. He said quite kindly, Come, dear child, seat yourself on my little chair by the fire and warm yourself. I will fetch you clear water if you are thirsty. But here in the forest I have nothing for you to eat but a couple of little roots, which you must first scrape and boil. St. Joseph gave her the roots. The girl scraped them clean. Then she brought a piece of pancake, and the bread that her mother had given her to take with her mixed all together in a pan and cooked herself a thick soup. When it was ready, St. Joseph said, I am so hungry. Give me some of your food. The child was quite willing and gave him more than she kept for herself. But God's blessing was with her, so that she was satisfied. When they had eaten, St. Joseph said, Now we will go to bed. I have, however, only one bed. Lay yourself in it. I will lie on the ground, on the straw. No, answered she. Stay in your own bed. The straw is soft enough for me. St. Joseph, however, took the child in his arms and carried her into the little bed, and there she said her prayers and fell asleep. Next morning she awoke. She wanted to say good morning to St. Joseph, but she did not see him. Then she got up and looked for him, but could not find him anywhere. At last she perceived behind the door a bag with money so heavy that she could just carry it, and on it was written that it was for the child who had slept there that night. She took the bag, bounded away with it, and got safely to her mother, and as she gave her mother all the money, she could not help being satisfied with her. The next day the second child also took a fancy to go into the forest, her mother gave her a much larger piece of pancake and bread. It happened with her just as with the first child. In the evening she came to St. Joseph's little hut, who gave her roots for a thick soup. When it was ready, he likewise said to her, I am so hungry, give me some of your food. Then the child said, You may have your share. Afterwards, when St. Joseph offered her his bed, and wanted to lie on the straw, she replied, No, lie down in the bed. There's plenty of room for both of us. 
St. Joseph took her in his arms and put her in the bed and laid himself on the straw. In the morning, when the child awoke and looked for St. Joseph, he had vanished, but behind the door she found a little sack of money that was about as long as a hand, and on it was written that it was for the child who had slept there last night. So she took the little bag and ran home with it, and took it to her mother, but she secretly kept two pieces for herself. The eldest daughter had by this time grown curious, and the next morning also insisted on going out into the forest. Her mother gave her pancakes to take with her, as many as she wanted, and bread and cheese as well. In the evening she found St. Joseph in his little hut, just as the two others had found him. When the soup was ready and St. Joseph said, I am so hungry, give me some of your food, the girl answered, Wait until I am satisfied, then if there is anything left, you shall have it. She ate, however, nearly the whole of it, and St. Joseph had to scrape the dish. Afterwards, the good old man offered her his bed and wanted to lie on the straw. She took it without making any opposition, laid herself down in the little bed, and left the hard straw to the white-haired man. Next morning, when she awoke, St. Joseph was not to be found, but she did not trouble herself about that. She looked behind the door for a money bag. She fancied something was lying on the ground. But as she could not very well distinguish what it was, she stooped down and examined it closely. But it remained hanging to her nose, and when she got up again, she saw, to her horror, that it was a second nose which was hanging fast to her own. Then she began to scream and howl, but that did no good. She was forced to see it always on her nose, for it stretched out so far. Then she ran out and screamed without stopping till she met St. Joseph, at whose feet she fell and begged until out of pity he took the nose off her again and even gave her two farthings. When she got home, her mother was standing before the door and asked, What have you had given to you? Then she lied and said, A great bag of money, but I have lost it on the way. Lost it? cried the mother. Oh, but we will soon find it again, and took her by the hand and wanted to seek it with her. At first she began to cry, and did not wish to go, but at last she went. On the way, however, so many lizards and snakes broke loose on both of them, that they did not know how to save themselves. At last they stung the wicked child to death, and they stung the mother in the foot, because she had not brought her up better. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend 2. The Twelve Apostles. Three hundred years before the birth of the Lord Christ, there lived a mother who had twelve sons, but was so poor and needy that she no longer knew how she was to keep them alive at all. She prayed to God daily that he would grant that all her sons might be on the earth with the promised Redeemer. When her necessity became still greater, she sent one of them after the other out into the world to seek bread for her. 
The oldest was called Peter, and he went out and had already walked a long way, a whole day's journey, when he came into a great forest. He sought for a way out, but could find none, and went further and further astray, and at the same time felt such great hunger that he could scarcely stand. At length he became so weak that he was forced to lie down, and he believed death to be at hand. Suddenly there stood beside him a small boy who shone with brightness, and was as beautiful and kind as an angel. The child clapped his little hands together, until Peter was forced to look up and saw him. Then the child said, Why are you sitting there in such trouble? Alas, answered Peter, I am going about the world seeking bread, that I may yet see the dear Saviour who is promised. That is my greatest desire. The child said, Come with me, and your wish shall be fulfilled. He took poor Peter by the hand, and led him between some cliffs to a great cavern. When they entered it, everything was shining with gold, silver and crystal, and in the middle of it, twelve cradles were standing side by side. Then said the little angel, Lie down in the first, and sleep a while, I will rock you. Peter did so, and the angel sang to him, and rocked him, until he was asleep. And when he was asleep, the second brother came also, guided there by his guardian angel, and he was rocked to sleep, like the first. And thus came the others, one after the other, until all twelve lay there sleeping in the golden cradles. They slept, however, three hundred years, until the night when the Saviour of the world was born. Then they awoke, and were with him on earth, and were called the Twelve Apostles. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend, free. The Rose There was once a poor woman who had two children. The youngest had to go every day into the forest to fetch wood. Once, when she had gone a long way to seek it, a little child, who was quite strong, came and helped her industriously to pick up the wood and carry it home, and then, before a moment had passed, the strange child disappeared. The child told her mother this, but at first she would not believe it. At length she brought a rose home, and told her mother that the beautiful child had given her this rose, and had told her that when it was in full bloom he would return. The mother put the rose in water. One morning her child could not get out of bed. The mother went to the bed and found her dead, but she lay looking very happy. On the same morning the rose was in full bloom. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend 4. Poverty and Humility Lead to Heaven 
There was once a king's son who went out into the world, and he was full of thought and sadness. He looked at the sky, which was so beautifully pure and blue. Then he sighed and said, How well must all be with one up there in heaven. Then he saw a poor grey-haired man who was coming along the road towards him, and he spoke to him and asked, How can I get to heaven? The man answered, By poverty and humility, put on my ragged clothes, wander about the world for seven years, and get to know what misery is. Take no money, but if you are hungry, ask compassionate hearts for a bit of bread. In this way you will reach heaven. Then the king's son took off his magnificent coat and wore in its place the beggar's garment, went out into the wide world and suffered great misery. He took nothing but a little food, said nothing, but prayed to the Lord to take him into his heaven. When the seven years were over, he returned to his father's palace, but no one recognized him. He said to the servants, Go and tell my parents that I have come back again. But the servants did not believe it and laughed and left him standing there. Then said he, Go and tell it to my brothers that they may come down, for I should so like to see them again. The servants would not do that either, but at last one of them went and told it to the king's children. But these did not believe it and did not trouble themselves about it. Then he wrote a letter to his mother, and described to her all his misery, but he did not say that he was her son. So, out of pity, the queen had a place under the stairs assigned to him, and food taken to him daily by two servants. But one of them was ill-natured and said, "'Why should the beggar have the good food?' and kept it for himself, or gave it to the dogs, and took the weak, wasted-away beggar nothing but water. The other, however, was honest, and took the beggar what was sent to him. It was little, but he could live on it for a while, and all the time he was quite patient, but he grew continually weaker. As, however, his illness increased, he desired to receive the last sacrament." When the host was being elevated down below, all the bells in the town and neighbourhood began to ring. After Mass, the priest went to the poor man under the stairs, and there he lay dead. In one hand he had a rose, in the other a lily, and beside him was a paper in which was written his history. When he was buried, a rose grew on one side of his grave and a lily on the other. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend 5. God's Food There were once upon a time two sisters, one of whom had no children, and was rich, and the other had five, and was a widow, and so poor that she no longer had food enough to satisfy herself and her children. In her need, therefore, she went to her sister and said, 
My children and I are suffering the greatest hunger. You are rich. Give me a mouthful of bread. The very rich sister was hard as a stone and said, I myself have nothing in the house, and drove away the poor creature with harsh words. After some time the husband of the rich sister came home and was just going to cut himself a piece of bread, but when he made the first cut into the loaf, out flowed red blood. When the woman saw that, she was terrified, and told him what had occurred. He hurried away to help the widow and her children, but when he entered her room, he found her praying. She had her two youngest children in her arms, and the three eldest were lying dead. He offered her food, but she answered, For earthly food we have no longer any desire. God has already satisfied the hunger of three of us, and he will listen to our supplication likewise. Scarcely had she uttered these words, than the two little ones drew their last breath, whereupon her heart broke, and she sank down dead. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook in its underlying text is in the public domain. Legend number six, The Three Green Twigs. There was once on a time a hermit who lived in a forest at the foot of a mountain and passed his time in prayer and good works and every evening he carried to the glory of God two pails of water up the mountain. Many a beast drank of it and many a plant was refreshed by it for on the heights above a strong wind blew continually which dried the air and the ground and the wild birds which dread mankind wheel about there and with their sharp eyes search for a drink. And because the hermit was so pious, an angel of God, visible to his eyes, went up with him, counted his steps, and when the work was completed, brought him his food, just as the ravens, by God's command, had fed the prophet. When the hermit, in his piety, had already reached a great age, it happened that he once saw from afar a poor sinner being taken to the gallows. He said carelessly to himself, There, that one is getting his desserts. In the evening, when he was carrying the water up the mountain, the angel, who usually accompanied him, did not appear, and also brought him no food. Then he was terrified, and searched his heart, and tried to think how he could have sinned as God was so angry, but he did not discover it. Then he neither ate nor drank, threw himself down on the ground, and prayed day and night. And as he was one day thus bitterly weeping in the forest, he heard a little bird singing beautifully and delightfully, and then... He was still more troubled and said, How joyously you sing! The Lord is not angry with you. Ah, if you could but tell how I can have offended him, that I might do penance, and then my heart also would be glad again. 
Then the bird began to speak and said, You have done injustice in that you have condemned a poor sinner who is being led to the gallows, and for that the Lord is angry with you. He alone sits in judgment. However, if you will do penance and repent your sins, he will forgive you. Then the angel stood beside him with a dry branch in his hand and said, You shall carry this dry branch until three green twigs sprout out of it. But at night, when you will sleep, you shall lay it under your head. You shall beg your bread from door to door, and not stay more than one night in the same house. That is the penance which the Lord lays on you. Then the hermit took the piece of wood, and went back into the world, which he had not seen for so long. He ate and drank nothing, but what was given him at the doors, many petitions were, however, not listened to. And many doors remained shut to him, so that he often did not get a crumb of bread. Once, when he had gone from door to door, from morning till night, and no one had given him anything, and no one would shelter him for the night, he went forth into a forest, and at last found a cave, which someone had made, and an old woman was sitting in it. Then he said, Good woman, keep me with you in your house for this night. But she said, No, I dare not, even if I wished. I have three sons who are wicked and wild. If they come home from their robbing expedition and find you, they will kill us both. The hermit said, Let me stay. They will do no injury either to you or to me. And the woman was compassionate, and let herself be persuaded. Then the man lay down beneath the stairs, and put a bit of wood under his head. When the old woman saw him do that, she asked the reason of it, at which she told her that he carried a bit of wood about with him for a penance, and used it at night for a pillow, and that he had offended the Lord, because when he had seen a poor sinner on the way to the gallows, he had said he was getting his deserts. Then the woman began to weep and cried, If the Lord thus punishes one single word, how will it fare with my sons when they appear before him at judgment? At midnight the robbers came home and blustered and stormed. They made a fire, and when it had lighted up the cave, and they saw a man lying under the stairs, they fell in a rage and cried to their mother, Who is the man? Have we not forbidden anyone whatsoever to be taken in? Then said the mother, Let him alone. It is a poor sinner who is atoning for his crime. The robbers asked, What has he done? To him they cried, Old man, tell us your sins. The old man raised himself and told them how he, by one single word, had so sinned that God was angry with him, and how he was now expiating this crime. The robbers were so powerfully touched in their hearts by this story 
that they were shocked with their life up to this time, reflected and began with hearty repentance to do penance for it. The hermit, after he had converted the three sinners, lay down to sleep again under the stairs. In the morning, however, they found him dead. And out of the dry wood on which his head lay, three green twigs had grown up on high. Thus the Lord had once more received him into his favour. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend, number 7. Our Lady's Little Glass. Once upon a time, a wagoner's cart, which was heavily laden with wine, had stuck so fast that in spite of all that he could do, he could not get it to move again. Then he chanced that Our Lady just happened to come by that way. And when she perceived the poor man's distress, she said to him, I am tired and thirsty. Give me a glass of wine, and I will set your cart free for you. Willingly, answered the Wagner, but I have no glass in which I can give you the wine. Then Our Lady plucked a little white flower with red stripes called field bindweed, which looks very like a glass, and gave it to the wagoner. He filled it with wine, and then Our Lady drank it, and in the same instant the cart was set free, and the wagoner could drive onwards. The little flower is still always called Our Lady's Little Glass. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend 8. The Aged Mother In a large town, there was an old woman who sat in the evening alone in her room, thinking how she had lost first her husband, then both her children, then one by one all her relations, and at length that very day her last friend. And now she was quite alone and desolate. She was very sad at heart, and heaviest of all her losses to her was that of her sons, and in her pain she blamed God for it. She was still sitting lost in thought, when all at once she heard the bells ringing for early prayer. She was surprised that she had thus in her sorrow watched through the whole night and lighted her lantern and went to church. It was already lighted up when she arrived, but not as it usually was with wax candles, but with a dim light. It was also crowded already with people and all the seats were filled and when the old woman got to her usual place it also was not empty, but the whole bench was entirely full. And when she looked at the people, they were none other than her dead relations who were sitting there in their old-fashioned garments, but with pale faces. They neither spoke nor sang, but a soft humming and whispering was heard all over the church. Then an aunt of hers stood up, stepped forward, 
and said to the poor old woman, Look there beside the altar, and you will see your sons. The old woman looked there, and saw her two children, one hanging on the gallows, the other bound to the wheel. Then said the aunt, You see, this is how it would have been with them, if they had lived, and if the good God had not taken them to himself when they were innocent children. The old woman went trembling home, and on her knees thanked God for having dealt with her more kindly than she had been able to understand. And on the third day she lay down and died. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend, number 9. The Heavenly Wedding. A poor peasant boy one day heard the priest say in church that whoever desired to enter into the kingdom of heaven must always go straight onward. So he set out and walked continually straight onwards, over hill and valley, without ever turning aside. At length his way led him into a great town, and into the middle of a church, where just at that time God's service was being performed. Now when he beheld all the magnificence of this, he thought he had reached heaven, sat down and rejoiced with his whole heart. When the service was over, and the clerk bade him go out, he replied, No, I will not go out again. I am glad to be in heaven at last. So the clerk went to the priest, and told him that there was a child in the church who would not go out again, because he believed he was in heaven. The priest said, If he believes that, we will leave him inside. So... He went to him and asked if he had any inclination to work. Yes, the little fellow replied, I am accustomed to work, but I will not go out of heaven again. So he stayed in the church, and when he saw how the people came and knelt and prayed to Our Lady, with the blessed child Jesus, which was carved in wood, he thought, This is the good God, and said, Dear God, How thin you are. The people must certainly let you starve, but every day I will give you half my dinner. From this time forth, he every day took half his dinner to the image, and the image began to enjoy the food. When a few weeks had gone by, the people remarked that the image was growing larger and stout and strong, and wondered much. The priest also could not understand it, but stayed in the church and followed the little boy about, and then he saw how he shared his food with the Virgin Mary, and how she accepted it. After some time the boy became ill, and for eight days could not leave his bed. But as soon as he could get up, the first thing he did was to take his food to Our Lady. The priest followed him, and heard him say, Dear God, do not take it amiss that I have not brought you anything for such a long time, for I have been ill and could not get up. Then the image answered him and said, 
I have seen your goodwill, and that is enough for me. Next Sunday you will go with me to the wedding. The boy rejoiced at this, and repeated it to the priest, who begged him to go, and asked the image if he too might be permitted to go. No, answered the image, you alone. The priest wished to prepare him first, and give him the Holy Communion, and the child was willing, and next Sunday, when the host came to him, he fell down and died, and was at the eternal wedding. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Children's Legend Number 10 The Hazel Branch One afternoon, the Christ child had laid himself in his cradle and had fallen asleep. Then his mother came to him, looked at him full of gladness and said, Have you laid yourself down to sleep, my child? Sleep sweetly, and in the meantime I will go into the wood and fetch you a handful of strawberries, for I know that you will be pleased with them when you awake. In the wood outside she found a spot with the most beautiful strawberries, but as she was stooping down to gather one, an adder sprang up out of the grass. She was alarmed, left the strawberries where they were, and hastened away. The adder darted after her, but Our Lady, as you can readily understand, knew that it was best to do. She hid herself behind a hazel bush, and stood there until the adder had crept away again. Then she gathered the strawberries, and as she set out on her way home, she said, As the hazel bush has been my protection this time, it shall in future protect others also. Therefore, from the most remote times, a green hazel branch has been the safest protection against adders, snakes, and everything else which creeps on the earth.